Well, folks, I made it. Well, hopefully I make it through this episode. You never know. I might pass out. It's a lot to, it's a, it's a, a lot to express, a lot to articulate. Um, anyway, uh, welcome to Radical Humanity. My name is Ben Hoover, and I am a licensed marriage and family therapist in this present day and age. And welcome to my podcast show, which doesn't feel much like a show because it's not not much of a big production. But, oh, actually, no, it kind of is, to be honest, because uh, this whole experience of the, the series that I've been doing, which is the series on the Beatitudes, and I'll explain what that is if that's unfamiliar to you, but this whole series I've been doing, uh, this is the eighth part, the eighth and final part, and man, as I think I said in the last episode, I wish I could... I wish I could capture into words what this has been like. I can, I'll, I'll give you a description of behaviors. Um, I began writing Friday, and I didn't stop really writing Saturday, Sunday, yesterday, or Monday, and yesterday, and then finished up today. And it's been writing, revamping these pieces that I've written back in March, uh, scrapping it all together, writing new pieces. Um, getting up at only having like three hours of sleep, uh, because this is just burning in my head and I've got to start writing and I light candles in the middle of the night and just start writing away. I've had dance parties. I've had um, dance parties, uh, with myself. Um, I've had moments of, oh, how do you describe it? This overflow of joy, of gratefulness, um, of, uh, enjoyment. I've, I've wept so much for what I've discovered for myself in these writings. So I've also, uh, I think as I talked about last time, I, I've had those moments where you probably would see me like I was, uh, one of those, one of those characters in a movie where it's just dark circles under the eyes, you know, not even, uh, just not even shaven, just messy shower, not even shower to oil, oily, greasy, smelly, you name it. I mean, that was, that's what was going on in me. I still ate and I would watch some, uh, some shows, uh, comedy I've been enjoying, uh, which is, it's actually, I didn't even think I would enjoy it, but it's called uh, the Marvelous Miss Maisel, I think. I love it. And uh, that was uh, helped kind of wash down sort of a palate cleanser from all the all the 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 grisly thinking and writing and uh, all the the grit of, of going through this process. So so that captures my experience. So that's what this has been like. And I'm excited. I'm actually really excited about this episode. I'm nervous, but it's like a nervous excitement because I don't know I don't know what's gonna come out of me. I mean, I've got my notes, I've got things ready to go. Um, but I don't, I don't know what's going to burst forth. I don't know what I'm going to include that I don't have pre-planned. And, uh, and so it's been a really thrilling, emotional, um, awakening experience for me uh, with these writings and with these podcasts. And I've, I've just deeply, deeply enjoyed it. And, uh, and I was gung-ho about, I'm not stretching this out. I'm getting this all done. I tried to get it all done over most of the weekend, which I did, I wanted it all finished, but stretching a couple days and, you know, the other things in my life really just got in the way. It's like, I don't want to, I don't want to go to work right now. I want to, I want to keep writing. 
So um, here I am talking about the last piece, finishing that up. Uh, once again, this is an eight-part series. I really, really uh, uh, encourage you to listen in order, in sequence, because that's the way I think the Beatitudes were laid out. Um, and so, again, if you're listening to this for the first time, then you don't, you don't uh, heed my, uh, my advice, and you're just going to listen to this, then let me refresh myself. Uh, and I and I and inform you, and we'll, we'll revisit this whole experience and what I've been writing on. So the Beatitudes, it comes from the ancient writings, or some people call it the Bible. I like the ancient writings, and the Beatitudes is what they've been labeled. But they're really these eight statements of blessing, and they're really unique and odd and mysterious. And there's some painfulness in there, and there's this there's a there's kind of a pain in the beginning, and there's pain at the end, and. And it's just a weird way that Jesus starts out what's called his Sermon on the Mount speech, where he sits down with a bunch of people that's surrounding him, mostly probably his disciples, and he starts talking to them about the, the truths, the realities of life. And he starts this out with this, these, these eight blessing statements. And, um, and, the, and they start with blessed, and blessed, the way I like to frame it, is how, basically how rich are you, how, uh, how content you'll be, how, uh, um, you know, how, and, and it's, it's the translation we have in the English language is happy, but happy is such a hallmarky, it just muddles it, it just waters it down so much where it's, it's just such a tasteless uh, understanding of it. The blessed is, it's so much, it's rich vibrant, uh, uh, thrilling, connected, alive. Um, that's, that's basically what this, uh, what makes this word this, that he says, that he starts out these statements. So blessed is, it's so uh, much more robust. Um, but so he starts it out with these statements. And, um, and so just a quick history on why this is even important to me. Why does it even matter? Um, Growing up, well, I'm not even going to start that far. It was, uh, that, I don't want to go, even go into that. So we're going to go back to my call at my grad school days. My final class in grad school, this professor pointed out the Beatitudes. It was a seminary I went to. I went there to, um, for my degree in marriage and family therapy to then move along on the path of becoming licensed. And he said this statement that the Beatitudes were this kind of a, I don't think he said journey, but it was like a journey where someone was going through this emptying process, losing, loss, then being emptied, and then hungry, and then being filled. And it was so, it, it just stood with me. And I don't know if you ever have those moments where something happens in life, somebody says something, you hear something, you experience something, it won't go away. It's just dog-eared uh, mentally in your mind. It, it just, um, it, it its presence stays. It, it loiters. Well, finally, it was last year, back in March, um, I went to this cabin, solo adventure, and I just had tons of incredible experiences for myself there. But I, I, I wrote. And I wrote, I took a break from writing and posting, and I just wrote for myself. And I wrote on the Beatitudes. I wanted to really explore it for myself. <clears throat> and... Um, 
and during these experiences, things started opening up for me. I started to discover it was it was my life. It was my understanding of life. It was it was just this accumulation of experiences and beliefs and thoughts and perspectives just starting to come together, unfolding under these statements. Because there's so much about these statements that even in these seven, eight, ten, twelve word uh, uh, constructed statements he makes, there's so much to unpack and unravel. That's, that's why I find it so exciting. And I was unfolding this for myself, unraveling it, and I just... It was such a beautiful, intimate time. So then I, I, I finished most of the pieces, and I just backed off. And I thought, well, I'll you know, come back to it one day. Well, about a, you know, within this last month, it had been stirring up where I thought, you know, I want to I go back to those. I want to finish them. I want to write it. I want to fine-tune it. And I want to do a podcast episode to each, which I think in my other, some of my other podcast episodes, I, I, um, I allude to that or I mention that that I'm going to do this down the road. Well, the road has come, and I'm doing it now. And so so you heard my experience, so I really kind of rewrote this stuff, or I added, or I revamped it, and or scrap, you know, just erased it all together and scratch, and started from scratch. And, um, and boy, the insights that came from that on a personal level was, uh, I mean, again, it cannot really be captured. So, um, so anyway, so that journey, then I started to see this as, oh, this is a journey. He's actually, Jesus, when Jesus is talking about this, he's literally laying out a journey that this is what I would say is this is actually true conversion. And conversion doesn't mean you go into another belief system, you leave, you know, one religious structure and you go into this or you go to that, or you just become atheist or it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with that. I mean, it does and it doesn't, but conversion, as I argue, or Another way to say this is metamorphosis, transformation, um, this, this change at the core of ourself. That's, that's what this conversion is, where we leave the, um, we differentiate or we leave in a way the external world on a psychological um, a degree, a dimension. And we find ourselves that then from that we live in the world. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Um, and it's so, again, you have to search you have to explore this. Uh, that's that, I think that's the reason why Jesus would lay it out in this way, was that it, had, it was packed with so much mystery that it caused one to, to fester, or not fester, caused to fixate on it, and then do, start to do some investigation. So, um, so just a, a recap, uh, starting from the beginning, he, it starts out with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for you will inherit the kingdom. So, um, uh, or, or I'm sorry, not for you inherit the kingdom, uh, that, uh, that theirs is the kingdom. So present tense, now, now you're in the kingdom. Now, it's here on earth, which is a really interesting phrasing. But it, the poor in spirit, as I phrase it, is that it's one who starts to go this detachment process that um, out of this core feeling deep within, which is called, um, uh, uh, Peter Rollins will call it the lack. Uh, I like calling it loneliness. Uh, this this vacant feeling inside of ourselves where we feel disconnected. That's another way I put it. At the at the core comes uh, what what arises out of that is all this struggle and chaos and stuff from earth, you know within the world within humanity and on a personal level on a global level, and that um, that in the the chambers of this loneliness right is this this hunger this hunger to 
to find oneself. But it goes through this, the poor in spirit is one where um, when you've lived uh, starving, impulsive, trying to feed this, this hungry hole inside. And by the way, this hole, I say, is, is created by our families, created by our parents that um, didn't help us uh, naturally separate in a healthy way, in a connected way, help us separate from them to find our own identity. So we remain psychologically dependent and emotionally dependent, and we feel this loneliness and this inner disconnect. And that are internalized experiences from our parents, that, that what, what, was, what feels vacant in us is what was absent in them, right? The, the vo- a lot of our voices, in a way, is a lot of what we've learned from them. What, it's been their voice instead of them helping us find our own voice, helping us understand our own feelings, our own needs, our own desires, uh, the, the uh, messages behind our behaviors, what we're trying to communicate through that. When we don't get that kind of uh, real involvement and there's shaming and there's these uh, messages of judgment and whatnot, it throws everything off. Or our parents just aren't there in any way. It's like we're left abandoned to ourselves. And so that's, those are the experiences we carry inside. So when someone lives with that, what we do is out of that lack uh, is we then accumulate things. We start looking to the external world, other attachments, surrogate parents in a way, to feed this inside, that we can feel a sense of wholeness, a sense of satisfaction, a sense of security. Um, and so we then will make objects and when I say objects, you can place anything. It could be anywhere from a leader, a lover, to clothing, to whatever, right? That, that it's, not a, a, it's not a genuine, true, f- uh, uh, enjoyable experience. Like, you, you don't just enjoy and delight in it. It's something where it's a craving. You need it. You have to have it to feel complete inside. And so we then glorify these objects, and it can be anywhere, you know, even God. We do that. We, you know, we objectify, you know, we objectify God, the divine, deity, Jesus, things like that. And we turn them into objects that we then need to fill this hole inside of ourselves. And, and, so, uh, um, and so from that, we then, it becomes a position of consumption, uh, of possessing, of holding on tight. And when someone then all of a sudden meaninglessness, emptiness, despair, whatever you want to say, cracks through the systems of that in ourself. We start, it starts saturating. It starts infecting uh, this, this experience on a, on a conscious and, a, and an emotional level. We start feeling this, ugh, what's the meaning of this? What's the point of this? It's kind of an existential crisis that we go through. And this is what, again, in the religious sectors or what even what in the Bible, in the origin stories there, what they talk about is sin. That original sin is this, uh, it's, it's this inner loneliness we feel inside, and it's not the inner loneliness itself. It's, it's when we act out of this inner loneliness uh, to extract from the world to try to feel, feel complete and secure inside. That's what the real meaning of original sin is, not this morality bullshit. <laughs> so um, anyway, so, so what we're talking about is, is on, a, on a deep intrinsic level that there's this feeling of loss inside of ourselves and we have to gain something. But the, poor, the one who enters into the realms of poor in spirit, they begin to experience this meaninglessness uh, uh, with the objects that they've consumed, that they've held on to, that they've possessed so tightly um, to try to feel... Uh, um, sort of a peace in themselves, at peace. Um, and then what happens is once they start to rake up this reality, the next 
the next part is this loss they go through, which is, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. And those that mourn are going through this loss of the attachment object, of the, of the things that we devote ourselves to, that we place so much meaning, that we've imbued with these magical, uh, with these, this, the, the answers to solve the remedies, the, or it's the remedy inside of us, the, the loneliness um, that was a very convoluted statement. We looked at these objects uh, as the remedy to cure the inner lack, the hole inside, the chasm. And, um, and so as we go through this loss, it's, it's, a, it's a vicious, uh, visceral loss. It's grieving like you would, you know, like a, a death of someone in your life or a, the loss of a lover, which is in a sense that it's that same concept. Is break, I think a lot of times breakups happen, divorces happen because we use the other to complete us, and and they become that object, and so we start to sep- the the realities of that start to hit, um, starts to fracture the relationship, and we it dissolves, because there's this we start to wake up that this person is not who I thought they were, who I fantasized them to be, who I idealized them to be. They're not going to cure this inner loneliness inside myself. Um, and so we go through this grieving process and loss, and it washes away. It's like a purging. It washes away that debris, um, the, even the, the false personas we put on, the masks, the, the part of ourselves that we masqueraded, and, and, and the true self that we hid underneath the mask, that we covered up so we could be in relationships, so we could have some semblance of connection, so we wouldn't feel so lonely. Uh, um, we, we wear that. We cover the true self, the part of ourself that gets angry and rage, and the sexuality, the gender, the, the passions we have that we push down so we can please our parents, so we can please society, so we can please God, so we could, we push that stuff down. We, we hide from others our true self, but really we hide from ourselves. So this loss starts happening, and then it turns into this, uh, blessed are the meek, uh, for they, oh shoot, <laughs> so they will inherit the earth. Is that it? Yes. Yes, that's the right one. So they'll, uh, um, so blessed are the meek, and I see this as this person's return to vulnerability, this intrinsic part of them, this childlike state, uh, uh, um, the, the part of us that's so, it's, again, it's intrinsic in us when we're born, and it comes alive in our childhood, and then it gets trampled down by a lot of wounding, hurt, judgment, shame, so on and so forth, having to please the external world. And it's this return back to our vulnerable self, um, and, and this one that lives open, in mystery, uncertainty. I wish I included that in the meek part, but but can it starts to just become. It's like they return back to earth, this groundedness, this earthiness. They become present. That's how I coin this whole meekness. Right? Or if someone says gentle, or all I see is that there's a softening, there's a tendering in the self. It's not passive. Um, and then what comes from that is blessed are the. Uh, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be satisfied. And this is, I love doing this one episode, the hunger and thirst in the Greek, what it's talking about is there's this anger, there's this fury inside of I want to know me. The righteousness is about, the, the um, one definition I really liked of this Greek word is that the, 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 um, the way one ought to be inside, not on an external level of, you know, what do they say I am? It's, who am I? And it, this hunger, this anger, this, it's an anger, it's, it, this anger is good. 
right? We've judged anger so much, but this anger, this anger is about the, um, the impediments. It's about feeling lost. It's the struggle. It's the woundings put on us. It's the shaming, the judgment that our parents, that our societies put on us, and this anger that arises in us is, is this rage of all the wounding, with the, the impediments that others put on us. And it's, in a way, this anger is cleansing. It's a fire that cleanses, and, it, and we start seeking it's an energy, too, that we start, we start going out, that we've lived in this helpless, stuck, uh, artificial place in life, and the anger starts cracking through that system. And it's this, again, it's this fuel, this propellant that drives us into the unknown to start seeking into the external world. And that's this, this tension, this paradox, is we need the external world. We go out in the world to explore, to test, to experiment, to examine who we are. Um... And so it, it changes where the external world is no longer this, uh, this objectified, this deified sort of entity and that we need to feel whole. No, in fact, the whole is turned in. It's, uh, what it's done is it's uh, uh, um, sort of surfaced. Yeah, actually, it's, it's surfaced this anger that I don't know who I am, that I want to know. And that, and when he says that those will be satisfied, the satisfaction is what it's. It's this. I'm at peace with myself inside. So it's this drive to go and find oneself and be at peace and explore. So, and that's what our you know when we return to a childlike state, that's what happens. We go and explore. We go and seek. We go and find who we are. We go and delight. We go. But again, this anger is such a cleansing, cleansing uh, um, fuel. That, that burns so beautifully in us. It's what happens is our anger often gets, you know, again, it's judged, it's shut down by people. We see it modeled in ways that are destructive um, and, and in a disconnected way that push people away, that harm people. That, But it's not the anger itself. It's that no one's really illuminated what the anger is, where it's directed, where it needs to be directed, um, what it's really communicating. And to give it expression and permission to be expressed. That's what's needed um, for us to find ourselves. So it's, a, it's an emotion that actually bridges, that draws us into a more connected self um, and, and to connect with others too. It's all, it's all the properties of love. Hate, same thing. It's not counter to love. It's actually, it's, in, it's indicating, it's illuminating that there's this hunger for love and that there hasn't been that kind of love that one's needed. But it's the it's what we do with the hate. It's when we go destructive with it. It's when we 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 like literally harm people. Not that there isn't fantasies there. Not that there isn't you know fantasies to allow oneself to express. And I don't mean like go and actually execute it. I just mean um, it's, these are important parts of ourselves to connect to because they'll draw us deeper into what we're looking for and what we want. Anger is sort of this road in a way, to draw us into what it is that wasn't given to us, what it is that, that what's missing inside of ourselves. So, didn't know I'd go into all that. Um, what follows that, shoot, where are my notes? <laughs> what, uh, what follows that after the hunger and thirst? Oh, there's, or the merciful. And the merciful is when they're on this journey, and it's the stumbling journey of, uh, of, um, becoming more aware of themselves. And by the way, the hunger is, is partnered with this growing awareness, this consciousness, um, beginning to see oneself on the inside. Um, 
And so this, this blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. God, that's been a, that has been such a, um, it's been so polluted with this whole sin, judgment, I'm forgiven. I don't like any of that. Really, what the merciful is, is when they're on this bold odyssey of struggle, of finding themselves, man, they're going to experience themselves really blowing it. You know, they're going to they're gonna blow up at people that aren't the source of their anger and pain. They're going to project stuff. They're going to they're gonna throw all their inner conflicts onto other people. They're going to, again, they're going to, it's just going to be a messy process of self-discovery. It always is. The struggle, there's a, there's a fight to find oneself as they engage with the external world and having to deal with the external frequencies um, that, that the merciful, oh, something opens up in them that they're, uh, that they um, they can embrace themselves fully, uh, or begin to embrace themselves in a, in a full whole way. That they uh, they can get angry, they can rage, they can weep and cry. But the one thing I discovered as I was writing, and this is based on my personal experience, is that the, those that are merciful are the ones that can laugh, and I'm talking about a deep laugh, not one that covers up pain, but that can laugh in the experience of reality. They can laugh at themselves and say, oh my God, I fucked up. That they participate in the comedy of life. They don't live um, uh, trampled down, imprisoned in the tragedies. That something alive in them happens. That they can laugh in a, like a deep, guttural laugh at themselves. And that in that experience, this is, this is, again, this is a, a rhythmic, reciprocating experience that in that they can then experience that and offer that to others, that they can laugh with them, that they can point out the realities in others, that they can weep, and, right? And not forcefully, but just that they can, uh, they can share this that's come up in themselves. And so that's what I see as the merciful, is this ability to imbibe in laughter and find the comedy and how healing that is. But yes, also being able to experience, and, and, it's, and it is, it's this deep guttural compassion. When we're talking about merciful, Jesus was talking about compassion, joining in with someone, feeling with someone, experiencing it together. And when I say experience, I mean on a feeling level, on a, on a physiological level, on a psychological level. Um, and so, so it's, that's how I read that. And then, after that, is blessed are, um, oh, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This was a big one. Now, the pure in heart, how I phrase it, is that it's those that have found their genuineness. It's those that have found their actual self. And in this piece, I go into shame and judgment and how that's been a voice uh, uh, transmitted, like sort of a, a disease transmitted throughout humanity, throughout our, genera- throughout our own family systems, generationally. And that, um, and that the shame is, when we feel shame in ourselves, this anger turned inward on ourselves, we feel so dirty, disgusted. And that's where, uh, as I've read it, that the, like the Israelites back in the Old Testament would cleanse themselves, wash, how to purify themselves, is trying to deal with this inner shame that they felt. But it was a shame that was passed down, that was delivered that the source of that was from the external world, from the messages of society, and particularly our parents. Um, and so one who finds themselves is pure in heart, meaning they've, they've found their voice inside. 
They found the truth inside themselves. They live out of that. They move out of that. They move out of the inklings. They move in the unknown. They listen to that. That's what I do as a therapist, is when I interact, I don't come with a plan, although you know I, I, I have things that I know I'm going to say, genuinely, but when I'm interacting with a client, I'm experiencing their life. I'm in the moment. I don't know what's going to happen. It's a mystery. When I walk into a session, I have no clue. But as I'm encountering them, there's these stirrings going on in me that I speak to, that I share. And what that happens when I do that, when I live out of that place, out of that core, not fearful and worried about what they're going to say and what they're going to do, but I just speak out of that place. Man, there's this energy, there's this liveness, there's this clarity, and there's a peace that comes from that. I leave sessions peaceful. I don't ruminate on it. So if I do ruminate on it, it's because there's a truth that needs to be said. Um, So this pure in heart is one that operates out of that dimension, inside themselves, listening. They're able to say yes and no and mean it. It's not with these little, it's not uh, um, polluted with these little double messages and whatnot. No. They can own their shit. They can, and then they can confront, they can address things. They, can, they know what they want. That's, that's the key. And they live out of that genuine core. Um, and they see God. And so when someone, what that means is, is when someone lives in that place, when they live in their genuineness, when they live in that deep, connected union with themselves, they begin to see the world differently, right? And what I say from that is that they've tapped the divine in themselves. There's this divine radiance that happens that illuminates people, and they start to see life not in the ordinary ways, but they begin to see life so differently. This divine radiance comes over of, oh, we're all trying to connect. We're all struggling to connect. We're all trying to deal with you know, reconciling this inner disconnect and trying to find peace inside. And everyone has their way and their expression of trying to do that, even if it hurts, even if it's harmful, even if it goes off the rails or whatnot, you begin to see, oh, now I see you. Now I see it. And that's what I mean is that life illuminates. It colors things so differently. It's, it's vibrant. It's alive. It's the surround sound. It's the best surround sound. It's the, it's the best... Uh, uh, you know, 4K screen resolution or whatever. <laughs> anyway, it, it, that's what I mean, is that that's what I believe Jesus is saying when he says you'll see God, that you'll see the divine right there in the presence of everything, illuminating, not in some object form. And so what's interesting is then what we've deified, what we've, we've, we've put so much meaning onto, that you're going to save me, that when someone goes through this, uh, through this inner work, what changes is now meaning comes out of the person. That, oh, I see the value, the worth in you. Instead of, that is, is great value, I need that. To con- you know, I need to consume that so I can feel value inside. And then comes the peacemaker part. Where he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they, for they, will, uh, they shall receive peace. I should have this all laid out. Anyway, um, and the peacemaker is one that disturbs the peace. And they disturb the peace in a way that um, the, the systems created by, the, by us, by humans, the big systems, the invisible psychological forces that we construct and make visible into the world, the big corporations, religious, political, materialistic, whatever, that the, the peacemaker who lives in this individualized, differentiated state, 
that what they do is they then, um, just that lifestyle of living passionately, freely, vibrantly, what they do is they invite others to experience the same and those. And, and so what happens is the, the peacemaker is one that disturbs the peace, the artificial peace. And I'm going to be going into that in this, this next piece I'm talking about. <clears throat> what the peacemaker has found, they, they live in the world that way because they found the inner peace. And they connect with people so differently. And, 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 and honestly, too. They're genuine with them. They speak the truth. They invite that kind of deeper connection. They invite people to find themselves, right? And in that very way, uh, uh, it, it threatens threatens those that don't want to see that, that are scared to go inside themselves. And so the peacemaker, it's not the peacemaker you think. It's not the hippie, right? It's not the, it's, it's not the person that slaps a coexist sticker on their back of their van. It's not that. It's not the person that tries to stifle conflict and let's not talk, let's just talk nicely. No, the peacemaker is bold, badass, a renegade, right? And that's what he's talking about is, you know, and that's, it's not those who have peace, blessed are the peacemaker for they'll be the sons of God. That's what he says. I promise you, I know what I'm talking about. Um, The sons of God is a political statement. Right, that Caesar uh, self-designated him, uh, that, that it was a self-designation from, from, uh, for himself, that he was the son of God, that he was a peacemaker. And the peacemaker, that, and the way he did peace was to use violence, to, to, to quiet the noise, quiet any of the disturbances that would disturb his rule, his peaceful reign. It was all narcissistic. It was all to feed his own peace that he would use violence on the external world so he could be settled inside. So when Jesus makes this statement, blessed are the peacemakers, for you'll be, the sons of, uh, you'll be called the sons of God, it's political, it's subversive, it's confrontational, it's blasphemous to the systems at large, religious and political. And so, so the peacemaker unsettles this, but they unsettle this from a place of peace in themselves and living out of the truth and enjoying people and enjoying life. So, um, on that note, whew, it's a half hour of, of all this. I'm going to get through this. The last piece, the final piece, is blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, right? For theirs is the kingdom. And then he says, blessed are those who are persecuted, um, who, uh, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you, right, because of me. So, here we go. Let's unravel. So, um, the last several years, I began asking myself some pretty big life-altering questions. And these questions that would come up in my mind, I would often keep them to myself or I'd share them with a couple of people. Questions that I deemed, well, actually, probably society deemed would be too controversial, particularly in the religious community I was a part of. Questions that I think wouldn't have been handled well, would have stirred the pot, would have been silenced or shut down. But these are also the questions that started to fray the fabric of my belief system, right? Uproot the foundations of my own thinking, my theological constructs. And there are questions that, that shattered basically everything I was taught. 
And there are the very questions I think have been stirring in me for a long time that I didn't see. A long time. And so I hid those questions from the public sector, often fearful of people's reactions. And scared to even unravel myself. But then, but now, here I am. I'm putting it on paper. Quote, unquote. I'll be posting it. I'll be posting this. I'm talking about it. So people get to see this. And you get to make of it what you will. But the questions that I ask are, who really killed Jesus? Why? Why did he, quote, unquote, die for our sins? Was it really this purposeful mission to eradicate our sin? So we could be saved. So we could, you know, secure, earn us, you know, get our room in the, you know, eternal mansions there in the sky. Did he take our place on the cross because the divine was so angry? And he had all this pent up, hoarded rage. And he needed something. And so Jesus just boldly, sacrificially went to the cross to just dump all this rage, have this rage dumped on him so we could be free. And yet, here was a man that you know, did nothing but care and, and, and offer freedom to the world. But is there another way, I ask, to interpret this, interpret his execution? One that I think for myself was more life-changing. One different than the message that's so gripped tightly by the religious, that's so agreed upon, that in order to be a club, you have to see it this way. So these are these big, scary questions that I left the church that put dents in my belief system, that created fault lines, that demolished and rebuilt my framework. And there were ones that eventually became more exciting for me. That in excitement and wonder, I pursued them. Now, I was taught when I was young, repetitiously, often, was that Jesus went to the cross willingly to die for my sins. And that uh, because of this gesture, in order to really receive this, I got to say his name, I got to accept him in my heart, I got to recognize my sinful nature, and I got to let him, you know, now he's inside me, and I got he's got to, you know, he's going to do the deep cleaning of all this years and years of inner grime. I mean, it's, he's going to get on his hands and knees and really scrub, scrub the shit out of me. But then there's this also this other ritual that once you enter into the club and you got your membership, you take a small piece of bread or a stale cracker, probably you know stored for months in the church pantry, <laughs> just no flavor at all, or some grape juice and a little tiny shot glass, wine, probably that you know if you're Catholic. And when you take these pieces, you bow your head and you muster up enough gratefulness to thank Jesus for this historically seismic decision to be executed for my wretchedness. And yet, at the same time, ingesting these substances, taking the, the juice, the bread, the wine, the bread, you know, cracker, in, you know, that, that represented his sacrifice, which, by the way, means something, I believe, really different when he did this whole communion thing with the... Um, uh, I, I don't think it was meant to be a ritual. It was symbolic to say, you are the church. By the church, he means everyone, this whole world. Commune with each other. Live, enjoy, basically. So, um, but uh, I digress. So, I had that going on for me, and now, being a member and going through the rituals and, uh, you know, doing the, doing the work, 
showing up to the ceremonial gatherings, speaking the lingo. Well, now it was my duty to, to share this message, get this message out in the world to the quote-unquote lost, you know, kind of creating a good slick sales pitch that I could solicit, get them to join me, join the saved, right? Lock down an eternal room in the heavenly bungalow. That was my, that was now what we were uh, pushed to do in a way. But by the way, I could never do this. Never. I never even wanted to. It didn't fit. But I'd judge myself for it. And then several years ago, all these questions, doubts started stirring in me. And partnered in this were these messages, these, these emotional reactions that seemed to be messaging something. Something felt off to me. But as I normally would do, I would default to approaching this internal activity with judgment, you know, forcing myself like it did, to accept the collective's perspective. But these doubts intensified. And then I began to pursue them, which eventually led to me leaving the church because I had all these questions. I didn't feel like I could ask them and, and be allowed and allow that to, you know, other people to maybe kind of sit on that and think about it. No, I, I, I just, I, I left. And really, I can put that on the church, but the reality is, is I just want to do it anymore. I wanted to explore life. The church was much bigger than the confines of a building. And so, so I left, pursued these. And following this departure was just this mix, this amalgam of painful, exciting experiences. There was anger and weeping and, uh, and dancing and feeling lost and uncertainty and tormenting doubts and um, you know, writing, ton of writing, dreams, like really rich, explorative conversations with friends, um, breaking the laws of the church, meaning having sex outside of marriage, oh no, um, you know, adventures, other actions, all governed by an inner stirring, and more, really laid the groundwork, really covered the grounds of what I would call as this lonely and mysterious path. And then over the course of this tumultuous time, you know, I felt more free to explore, to endeavor in understanding this, to ask these controversial questions, to interrogate this that once plagued me. And yet some of these questions, they centered on unraveling something, I mean, cemented, foundational, central, unalterable to the Christian faith. This tenet that basically held everything up that I was raised under. And that had to do with the death of Jesus. Now, so Jesus, when he goes into this, he, he, really, he really does a good job warming that soul up in his audience when he, you know, goes into the, you know, he follows the peacemaker blessing with another one, one that's actually more unsettling. When, and he thinks, you know, Jesus thinks it's, it's, you know, this is meant to encourage, right? So he says this encouraging blessing when he goes, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay. And then he doesn't stop there, but he adds more to this hopeful message. Right? He adds more to this, this little beatitude pep talk he's given. And he says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Okay. Well, that doesn't get you all energized and ready to go, you know, up in the morning. And let's get the peacemaking going on here. Yeah. So what he does, um, what, what, what I'm wondering is, what does he mean when he says this? Why... Why, if someone is this peacemaker, if someone 
is bringing this peace and restorative energy into the world. Like, why this backlash? Why this vitriol? Why does this get ignited? You know, why this, this kind of restorative energy, you know, this naturally express, inviting people to experience this? Like, why is this so disruptive and threatening? Why does this conjure up a, a murderous vigilante, you know, that, that become hell-bent on silencing, if not extinguishing, dissolving this of the earth? Well, let's go into it then. Now, let's look at this kind of even presently. When we come in contact with the foreign or the alien to us, we're not often doing this with an open embrace, right? in a position to really learn for the sake of personal transformation. For instance, let's take the, that, you know, in our, uh, biologically or whatnot, we, in our, there's this physiological antigen, some, some illness, some virus shows up, right, unannounced in our bodies, and it causes disruption in our life. Well, what do we do? Well, we load up on drugs and we start firing away at the disturbing presence, right? The thing that's fucking up with our peace. And we atom bomb it until there's nothing left. So we ingest or we inject whatever substances we can to inoculate ourselves from this thing wreaking havoc. Right? And we think this is going to do the trick. But it doesn't happen just on a, f a physical level, right? It's not just the physical virus that upsets our lifestyles. There's something more entrenched. It's more widespread in our humanity. It's more and more common today to regulate or subdue our own psychological and emotional disturbances with some psychotropic substances in the hopes that it will quiet the cacophonous frequencies, right? It will sedate it. It will tranquilize it. These frequencies that are often loud in us, causing disturbances, consuming us, haunting us, but it's not just our own selves that we take this approach, it's our children too, who are now plagued with psychological categories, that their behavior becomes labeled as disorders, that are in imminent need of modulation, ADHD, bipolar, anxiety, oppositional defiant, depression, so on and so forth. Those are those titles we stick on them. And then they become inextricably uh, cemented to their identity. And then they'll sometimes grow up uh, being eternally dependent on the medication to subjugate all this. And the common understanding is that often we, we confine this, uh, we restrict this, these quote-unquote disorders to the individual. And then we must deal with it on the individual level. Quarantine it, domesticate, tranquilize it. And so we, under, we often approach these anomalies with a very constricted periphery. We target the individual as the problem or the patient. This happens often. The teenager that comes in, the parents, or you deal with it. The husband that acts out, he's the problem. The anger, the person has the anger problem, they're the problem. We're, we are, we're really, our very entrenched default is dependent on somebody else. Right? So, um, so then, so what we do is we target and we, you know, them and, and, and uh, as the patient, as the problem, and rather than seeing them as something illuminating these dissonant frequencies, these disorders, something's off in the system at large, in our family at large, in humanity at large. Or we feed ourselves, you know, or we find ourselves convinced that, like, the one who commits adultery 
who engages in pornography, who's addicted to drugs, has an anger problem, right? They're the wrongdoer. They're the miscreant. They're the, they're the issues. They're the main, they're the, the, the source of the issues in the relationship. But just so you know, like even as a side note, sometimes even if someone goes, has an affair or goes and look in pornography, doesn't mean necessarily that there's an issue in the relationship, that there's some substantial relational problems. Sometimes, sometimes not. But sometimes, if we don't really open up to really learning why, we will realize that the individual is sometimes looking to connect to something in themselves that's been long lost, that hasn't been brought out. But we don't do that because in our hurt and pain, we'll squash that person and say they're wrong. But this isn't just limited on a small town scale. It's not localized to just our family or the individual. It's bigger than that. I mean, abusers, rapists, pedophiles, perpetrators of domestic violence, murderers, sociopaths, sadists, terrorists, evil narcissistic leaders, right? They become the anomalies in our society, or they are, that then we target. They become the scapegoats. And these weeds, right, go quickly quickly in our nicely tailored gardens that interrupt or restrict our restful enjoyment, our peace that we've worked so hard to attain. And we're convinced that they're the true problem. We do this with pornography. We judge it as bad, wrong, it's the abusive, it's destroying this. this. But is it? Do we ask those questions that, what is my reaction telling me? And so we, about myself, I mean. So we construct ways then to deal with these anomalies by quarantining them from society. We build lifeless prisons out in far distant fields, away from our suburban lives, our manicured, manicured villages. And we suppress and we contain these toxins from getting out, from leaking out. Or we'll even annihilate them from the world, right? Where we'll kill people, we'll, the death penalty, or we'll, um, we will destroy countries, nations. That we convince that they're the ones, they're, they're the, um, the miscreants, they're the, they're the perpetrators, they're the one causing the disharmony. But it's way more complex than that. So wherever the disturbance is, whether it's in our bodies, our children, our lovers, our tribal collectives, the world at large, these mechanisms we often return, we turn to to inoculate ourselves from this. But here's the question I ask is, what if these antigens, these diseases, so to speak, that, that plague us, our families, our societies, what if they're actually truth-tellers? What if that which we're trying to extinguish is trying to communicate something that's deeply rooted, it's more insidious, living in the soil of humanity? What if they're mirrors, rather, profound mirrors, pointing out something to be seen that exists in humanity on a global scale, but not just a global scale, but inside our very selves that we also create? What if the scapegoats we put all of life's problems on, they're actually the answer, the antidote to the disease saturating human existence? What if these quote-unquote disorders are illuminating expressions of consciousness to the disordered foundations from which we build these constructs, these systems, in the hopes that it will reconcile something going on inside of us, the lack, the, the loneliness, the inner disconnect? What if these antigens actually are light piercing through our unconscious darkness, inviting us to look within at the very source from which these kingdoms these are built, 
what if they're the evangelists that tell us that deep, deep inside we feel lonely, isolated, disconnected? And so my question then is, having seen this, then what do I do? What do you do when you begin to see this in yourself and in the world? When this illuminates for you? Having gone through the, the, the ripping apart, the, the violent, almost violent experience, the trials and tribulations of finding the lost self, finding you, that's been once been enslaved, consumed, enmeshed in a dependent way in the external world. To cure the insides, the whole inside. And what do you do when you've now found that peace and freedom within? So, again, the peacemaker I talked about, they're not ones that operate passively in the world. They illuminate the realities of life, but they do so in a genuine, connected, um, honest, compassionate, and a differentiated and unique way. So they have their own message as to why they, how they communicate that. Comedians do that. You know, people write books. People engage, you know, become, you know, Esther Perel is really well-known and renowned for her understanding of sex and relationships and those intricacies. I mean, so it comes out in different shapes, these messages, the, the peacemaker inside. But the peacemaker, we're not talking about a street corner evangelist who stands on the side and holds up this sign that you know, that, that boldly, with bold prints, you know, about hell and damnation. And then they return home, kick their feet up proud because they've pissed enough people off. They've, they've, they're, they're coated with enough venomous spit from people. And then they think that that's persecution. Actually, the true peacekeeper, or the peacemaker, is one that disrupts the artificial securities that ravage humanity, that rely on the outer world, that have created a deified object to manufacture this pseudo-tranquility. That's just really a transient fix. It's a quick shot in the arm, 10 minutes of a high, basically. It's a kind of peace that's a counterfeit, that masquerades as the serenity we seek to feel within. It's not real, in other words. And so the peacemaker illuminates this, they illuminate these realities on the, with the religious, the political, the materialistic systems we construct out of this inner loneliness, this hunger to feel content and connected. And they do so in a way sometimes confronting the systems at large. But the reality is that's not, that's not where the real confrontation, the true confrontation is the way one lives their life. It's their own lifestyle of having differentiated freed themselves from the systems that humanity collectively creates and feeds. And when I talk about this system, let me clarify that it's, this is a system that it's an invisible psychological force that then becomes a visible creation out of this lack that haunts us, right? That it, 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 we use to, to hold ourselves up in life, to feel okay with ourselves. And that could be anywhere from clothing, furniture, um, religion, politics, you name it, sports. Those aren't bad. It's just this. what happens is we build these large kingdoms so we don't have to feel the loneliness that lives inside of us. 
right? So the system I'm talking about, again, is created out of this inner lack. And we can rail at the systems of law. You see that. You see that. You see people yelling at people, you know, to like, you know, help the environment. You see, uh, you see celebrities stand on stage and give their speech and, and, and like, and just stuff it full of the political and, and say this and say that and do this and do this. And, and they cast their message out in the world and say, you need to do this. We need to change this, right? But they're pissing in the wind. They're yelling into the wind. It doesn't matter because the system is created out of, this, out of our own selves collectively, creating a psychological dependency on the external. And it's a dependency that lives inside us that was never severed when we were young, that never left us in our early connections. And now we seek to reconcile. All right? I've been saying this in 90 different ways. So the system that we fight about is it's futile because we are a part of the system. Only thing that changes is when we begin to look inside. Not out of guilt, not out of shame, not out of need. No, it's because I want to. Something in me is stirring. Something in me wants to seek. Something in me doesn't, doesn't want this way of living. That's what changes the system. And so, but it's a system that's run by leaders in powerful positions that we ourselves create, hold up, induct, rely on, supply us, that they supply, we believe will supply us with the answers to these inner questions to look for a cure. And that could be a political leader, government, pastor, priest, parent, objectified divine source, lover, so on and so forth. They all take the place of this provider, this nourisher of our inner loneliness, vulnerabilities, our insecurity. So the peacemaker, I argue, is an anomaly. This is what I love, is the peacemaker is an anomaly to our worlds of certainty and our tribal uniformity. They come outside the boundary lines, right? They show up in different ways. They ignite something in us. They piss something off. They create discomfort in us. Not intentionally, in a way, but just the way they are, what they live, right? For instance, what if someone who does pornography, but I grew up hearing in the church, hearing is they have daddy issues and whatever and whatnot. What if, maybe deep down, there's a part of them that really enjoys it, that really does, freely, enjoys it? They don't have any qualms. The only thing that they have qualms about, the only thing that really gets in them is that society judges them. But what if they really enjoy it, truly? What do you do with that? There's something wrong with them. See, the reality is we will judge that. We will say, oh, she's lost or he's lost. Or, but what if they, that's what they enjoy? And, and so, you know, and so, uh, and, and yet the, when they enjoy their life, it stirs stuff up in us. We immediately go to judgment. We immediately think that, well, there's something wrong with them. But do we ever stop to listen to our own selves of why does this create this reaction in me? We're so fused with the other world that we, we put it on them, the outer world, and make it about them. They're the problem. They're the ones causing these issues in me. We're really good at doing that, at deflecting, misdirecting, right? living in helpless, victim-like states. So, um, so anyway, so the peacemaker is an anomaly. They stir it up in the way they live, but they're often judged as the ones who are lost, they're wrong, they're deviant, they're transgressive, they're sinful. 
but they're revealed in the skins and lifestyles that are antithetical to our own tribes, our own little security systems we've created. And I think, I see it as the, the greatest anomalies is that it's ones that have found their true self and they just enjoy, they enjoy their life fully. Even in contradiction to the system's rules and standards and their whitewashed regimes. And so the peacemaker is an evangelist in an embodied way, in a natural way, in the way they peacefully and enjoyably live out their lives and their passions. Because they've discovered who they are. And it's a lifestyle lived from the inside out. And so we read then, what happens is we read in the accounts of Jesus all these labels being brand, you know, uh, branding him by the religious leaders. He's sinful, he's blasphemous, he's demonic. He's, right? And these labels are given because he embraced a life outside the painted lines of the pious. He lived independent of the system in its seductive, intoxicating ways. He found him governed out of the core. He went through his own difficult inner work, which you can see if you actually read closely, if you actually uncover it in the temptations in the desert, that's what it is. It's discovering himself and going through the, the uh, vicious tension between the outer world and living for the outer world and finding himself. And so because of this difficult inner work, he found his message and he articulated this out of a genuine embodied disposition. He lived free. And he welcomed all. And he authentically enjoyed, truly deeply enjoyed, being around people who were pushed into the shadows, the margins of society. And it was a love that from the religious, from the systems at large, it was judged to be scandalous, sacrilegious, right? It confounded, angered, terrified the religious. And it was a love that billowed out of this genuine, secure inner self. They just freely enjoyed people. Right? He did. And it crossed all the lines, broke all the rules, all the boundaries in the religious systems. And so, and then you also see in these accounts of Jesus that, that the people that really were hungry, the people that were really in that meek, vulnerable, hungry, alive state or looking to feel alive, man, those are the people that saw that and said, I want that. I mean, that's when he says you're saved, your faith has, made you, has saved you. What he's saying is you listen to this part of yourself, you listen to that part that wants to live, that wants to be alive. All right. He didn't say, oh, I did that, you know. Yeah, no. He said, wow, you woke up. You see it now. That's going to forever change you. You can't go back. That's That's... So the people that were starving, that were connected to this hunger, they're the ones that devoured that, that wanted that, that gravitated towards him, magnetized. Those are the ones that broke through the society's oppressive restrictions and regulatory structures. And so Jesus was so deeply connected to life that the reality is he operated out of a different dimension. One that was so foreign to mankind and yet accessible. And it's accessible now. It's present now. It's what Jesus would say is the kingdom of heaven. And so what's so common and what's been so entrenched in our belief system in humanity, past, present, probably future, is that heaven is this unblemished, euphoric, celestial land, right, out of reach, out of this life. 
and and we got to work our asses off to secure a place, you know, through ritualistic formula, through through, you know, uh, uh, a satisfying life that for the divine that will satisfy God. And so Jesus actually destroys this. He ruptures this entirely. He causes fracturing in this, with this in these fictitious, distorted ideas. And he does so because he, the way he lives, a bold and liberating embrace of existence in the present. And so what he's really illuminating, what he's talking about, is that the realm is actually here. It's not in the external regions of the earth and the universe, but it's found in our actual selves. It's stirring inside when he says the kingdom of heaven is within you. I love this statement so much. Because he's saying it's inside you. So all these external riches, treasures, lovers, titles, salaries, money in the bank, whatever, adventures, all that stuff. All the stuff that we've consumed. They're not, what I'm saying is that in and of itself, they're not bad stuff. But everything that we've hoarded, consumed, accumulated, rest our souls upon to feel alive and connected, right? They come from these lonely inner worlds. They're desperate. Don't want to lose that. And they do so in the hopes to feel alive. But instead, the riches that we seek to feel alive are actually experienced inside of ourselves, in the interiors of ourselves. So, really, this hunger to feel alive, fully connected to ourself and life, right? it doesn't come in object form. They can't do it. That's what I mean in the poor in spirit. It, it, the, the object loses its power. It's impotent. It becomes impotent, lifeless, benign. Because it's always the real true life has always been found inside. So when you awaken to this, to your inner voice, to the fact that heaven is now, the kingdom is now, which is what he says, poor in spirit, your king, the kingdom is now. You own it. You're in it, right? Ends it too. With those persecuted, you're in it. So, when you wake into this, you don't live in an underground bunker now, hoarding, you know, dried foods and, you know, and and, and, and bottles and guns and ready, you know, ready for Armageddon, ready for you know the scorched earth to happen, ready for you know heavens to come down. No, eternity. Ah, it's not that. Eternity is now, deep in time, impactive active, connective, pleasurable. It's that, it's when we live with that kind of embrace, that's eternity. Is you enjoy life, you devour it, you embrace it fully. So then, if you're reading this, or you're listening to this, or whatever, and you're, you know, you're somewhat excitement, maybe you're excited, maybe you're a little scared, maybe you're wondering, you know, who the hell is this guy? What the fuck is he talking about? Um, but if you, if you beam with hope, if you, this, this euphoric burst comes out of you over this message of reality and invitation, just know that there's a cost to this. It means leaving the quote unquote world, the dependency on the other in order to find this rich, abundant life that lives in our own skin. It's risky though, because when you leave, when you answer this voice, you become a threat to the fragile systems upheld by humanity. 
And these systems really are terrified of collapse. It's what the Pharisees, why they tried to snuff out Jesus, try to or extinguish him. Is, well, they did successfully, is, but that was their attempts because they were terrified of this collapse, of facing this inner loneliness, this vulnerability, this isolation. And so one who's so afraid of that, if you think about it, you can think of that in yourself. Why do you jump to attack someone? Why, why does that happen? Why do you blame someone so instantly? If it's not that there's, there's something stirring in you that's ter- you're terrified to see what's inside, and really what it is is this painful loneliness. And so then it's constructed in bigger form, and then we, we gather around and create, create groups around it. So what happened is then these systems are so terrified, people within the systems, I mean, they're afraid of seeing this. So they viciously, viciously attack, ostracize, silence, destroy anyone that threatens this. And if you're a criminal, right, you're deemed a criminal and you're locked up in prison, forgotten, sting, you know, quarantined away, or you're the one that's found your genuine self and you live out of this peaceful center. You've differentiated from these insatiable systems that rule existence. Then you better expect to be hated, judged, and ostracized, an outcast. It's going to happen. I've had friends that have gotten angry at me because of the stuff I write about. Because I wrote about porn. You know, and I've, I've had friends angry at me. Because I've explored that. I've wanted to understand what's more behind that. You know? And that's the risk. Oh, we're still friends. I still love them. There's been some beautiful working out and repair. But that, that's going to happen. Yeah, I get nervous sometimes when I share this stuff. But at the same time, I don't want to just sit on it. And so, and so here's the thing. is This is why I think Jesus was crucified. Because he offers a way out of this oppressive grip of these industries that we collectively create and we sustain. And these industries that they need our unwavering devotion to remain upright. But if we leave, they'll threaten, they'll harm. Cults do this, right? You know, the, the, or they'll execute actual threats. Or they then get on their pulpit, their online pulpit, their internet pulpit, and they'll 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 just write they'll dedicate websites to you know uh uh just plastered with vicious unfounded deceitful claims of heresy right and they'll dedicate websites to slandering someone taking them down literally attacking their thoughts the way they live what they talk about and they'll slander those who live unbridled, free, vibrant. Because again, what I believe is that underneath is this fragile, vulnerable, terrified self. And so, the way I see it is is actually the religious, the political regimes that murdered Jesus. They were convinced he was the problem, the antigen, the disease, the transgressor. And the reality is he was. He was all of that. He was a cancerous contagion that... that you know, arose out of the diseased realms that cursed humanity. So does the other criminal. I mean, Jesus was associated with that, right? He was that. He was a part of it. He was the outcast. He was one of the criminals. He was the one that was illuminating the issues. And so, and so, um, again, Jesus was this, I see as this conscious beacon showing us the way to aliveness, vibrant living, 
real connection, actual peace and freedom, to find that connection deep inside. But instead, the religious political rulers saw him as this aggressive life-threatening force, virus, in which this virus would need to be, you know, uh, destroyed because it would contaminate, it would expose the vulnerable uh, uh, worlds underneath the kingdoms constructed. And then the other controversial shot, um, uh, thought, which if it hasn't been controversial, then <laughs> enough. Um, uh, this other thought is that we've deified Jesus. We've turned him into another object to be glorified that we hope would rescue us from the tyrannies of our own loneliness, anxiety, uncertainty. But Jesus is not the Savior we've fantasized, we've idealized him to be. Rather, he's a Savior in the sense that on I see it as that in his life and death on the cross, he exposed the realities of these oppressive systems that we create, that we fight to uphold. He also uncovered that violence, because it was violence. It was such a... Such a uh, incredible, violent, I don't mean incredible in the best sense, it was so uh, uncomfortably, horrifically is a better word, horrifically violent, his execution, that he uncovered that violence is an elusive solution to quiet these deep conflicts inside, in our humanity. And he unveiled that violence only, only further entrenches us in these oppressive regimes. So his death not only illuminates the deceptions of the quote-unquote object as a panacea, as something that's going to cure everything, but his death is one that shatters these illusions and plants a seed, I believe, in our, in our minds, in the souls, to begin looking into the source of where all this is birthed, where all these atrocities, where all these systemic disorders come from. So, what I believe then is that the lack is the way, the truth, and the light. He shows that Jesus shows us the real connection, satisfaction, peace, pleasure, aliveness. They're found through a different path. It's a painful one, a lonely one. It's this hole inside of us, this gap inside that invites us to listen, to seek, and experience. It's a lack that will liberate us from a dependency on the outer world for sustenance. It's a fissure in ourselves that frees us from the tyrannies of shame and judgment and and that brings us back to vulnerability. It's an inner chasm that draws us to peace and union with our true self. And it's an opening to enjoying life fully, passionately, and indulgently. And so here's the thing, here's the paradox is that you're going to be a lonely voice in the world. And you're going to encounter great loss. And you're going to become, maybe, the scapegoat to other people's pains. Those who are terrified to see inside themselves. And yet at the same time, that's not enough to push you in the shadows. That's not enough to hold back living, to enjoy life, because you'll enjoy it so unrestrictedly and wholeheartedly, that those threats and actions, they fail in suffocating this uncontainable joy and embrace of existence. And it's an embrace that comes from when we embrace ourselves inside, within. 
And out of that embrace comes instinctively generates this wild, ungovernable, infectious energy that's imbued in our own personal, unique, distinct, idiosyncratic articulation. Whether it's woodworking, whether it's talking about sex, whether it's whatever it is, that somehow we found ourselves in the passion and we share that message for others to feast and imbibe. And those that are really famished, those that are really starving and connected to that, that know that, that recognize that, that want to feel alive in themselves, they'll listen, they'll join, they'll eat. I don't get a lot of response when I post this stuff, but there are some people, some of the, some of the, 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 the regular attendees that will say something, and that keeps me going. It keeps me going. And I know that's it's worth it. <laughs> Even though, because there are those, it's few, that will take it in, that will ask questions, that will, they just will. And so, therefore, this death, quote-unquote death, I'm, just, I'm not talking about Jesus, I'm talking about in ourselves, the ones we go through in this loss, the one we boldly and willingly surrender to. It unearths, this vigorous, immutable force living in the soil of ourselves and now is awakened to real life. And it's passionately displayed in the midst of, you know, artificial imitations that masquerade as the genuine thing. Because the riches have always been inside us, but it requires us plunging into the depths of the self, of ourselves, to find it. And so I say that as I conclude this, that I hope that you follow your questions. I hope you follow those doubts and you embark on a bold journey, an unraveling journey to find freedom. And I feel emotional talking about it because it's been, it's been a journey. And I want to end with this. It's been a long episode, but um, when I post this, I don't know where I'll be. I realized recently that it's time for me to go. That for a while I'm going to close up shop when it comes to therapy. That I'm going to go travel because I haven't. I'm going to go leave home in a way. That honestly I've been really psychologically fused with my mom. For the longest time, for most of my life, I've lived at home. It's helped me get through school and whatnot. But there's been this anger growing in me that I need to go and separate, leave. Because it's been, it's been too much of her voice in me. And, um, and I realized that when I realized I don't want to, I don't want to buy a home here. I don't want to buy a home. I don't want to buy a home here. I don't want to live here. I had this moment where I walked for an hour and a half in the dark through the creek area and through the park close to my house. And, and I woke up realizing, or I had this waking up realizing I don't want to buy a home here. Even though I was searching, I don't want to live here. I've lived here for 30 goddamn years of my life. It's time to go. But that, that comes with a cost. That comes with separation. That comes with leaving what I've known, going away. What I'm going to do, hopefully, is throw what I need in my car and just start driving around the states, staying where I'm going to stay, not booking anything, just going. Sometimes staying with family, letting them know. So that, that'll, that's coming around the corner. But it's time, and to follow that, comes with, yes, the conflicts and the struggles and the fears and the sadness. and But I know to listen to that because I'm excited. 
I'm already fantasizing, dreaming about where I want to go and what I want to do. And eventually it might be me leaving another country. And I don't know what will turn of this work that I do as a therapist, my writings, my podcasts. For now, I might, I, I could discover elsewise, but I might, you know, for now, just close up shop with the podcast that this is, I kind of see this as something, something's changing. I'm, I'll come back with new things to talk about, but I need to go for now and go and write and go and explore and go and live life and explore more of myself. And so I hope that you listen to that in yourself because it's, it's a bold thing to detach, to differentiate, to leave the systems, your family, politics, religion, whatever tribe it is, and go find you, that then you engage in the world so differently, in a newfound way, alive, free, not reactive in a way to the world, but proactive, engaging, with boldness, with humor, with tears, with anger, all of it, with deeper insights. So, for now, this is it. This is the, this is the eight-part series. And I hopefully will talk to you later or talk to myself later. But for now, take care.